0: Tonight, I'd like to continue the discussion that I began the opening morning about sudden awakening and gradual cultivation. So, what does sudden awakening mean? It's the recognition of the mind's open, empty, aware nature. Mackenzie Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan Zhou Chen masters of the last century, he described it this way. He said, and he's, as a reminder, he's not talking philosophy here, he's talking about the nature of our minds. So, our minds. <laughs> so when you hear it, it's about you. <laughs> okay. Mind. of our minds has no form no color and no substance this is its empty aspect no form no color no substance and yet mind can know things and perceive an infinite variety of phenomena this is its clear aspect the inseparability of these two aspects emptiness And clarity is the primordial continuous nature of mind so this nature of mind is not something that we need to get or develop rather it's something we need to recognize in ourselves we need to recognize it and experience it and come back to it so if during the day You feel yourself at different times struggling to be aware. Perhaps a helpful little mantra might be, already aware, or it's already here. It's not something to get, it's something to come back to. It's the reminder that the practice is not about wanting or getting, It's about settling back into that wisdom mind of non-clinging. Again from Kenzie Rinpoche, he said, Awareness basically means freedom from clinging. If there is clinging, it is not awareness. So in any moment, when we remember, we can drop back into that wisdom mind of non-grasping, non-clinging. And it's helpful to remember that this is the bottom line of our practice, that all the methods we talk about and all the different skillful means and all the different tools that might be suggested, they're all for the purpose of experiencing the mind of non-grasping. They're all in the service of this end. But then a question might arise, if the nature of mind is awareness, if that is the very nature of mind, and in this respect the awakened state is already here, then what does gradual cultivation mean? Why did that Zen master Shenul says, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. Why didn't he just stop with sudden awakening? What is there to cultivate? It's important to understand that sudden awakening does not mean that we're fully enlightened. So let that sink in we may have recognized to some extent the open, empty, aware nature of our mind. We may have had moments of it or even many moments. But as Shenul goes on to say, although we have awakened to original nature, maybe we've gotten a glimpse of this empty, aware nature of mind. Although we have awakened to original nature, Beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly. Hindrances are formidable, and habits are deeply ingrained. So how could you neglect gradual cultivation simply because of one moment of awakening? So this is an important teaching here. Even with a moment of awakening or many moments, I love this line hindrances are formidable and habits are deeply ingrained. <laughs> I mean, we know that. But then Chanel goes on. He says, But although you must cultivate further, you have already awakened suddenly to the fact that deluded thoughts are originally empty and the mind's nature is originally pure. So, Chanul is reminding us here of something important. He said that although moments of awakening to the nature of mind, or many moments, are not complete, there's still much gradual cultivation to do, still, those moments transform the way we do our practice. So, they're significant. Because then even as we practice the gradual cultivation, which is a lot of the practice we do, even as we practice that with all the various skillful means and methods, we are proceeding or we're doing the practice from the understanding that the hindrances, the defilements, the habitual energies are themselves empty and without substance So even as we're working with them, you know, and learning about them, our perspective about them is different. So in one description of the Buddha's enlightenment, when he's sitting under the Bodhi tree the night of his enlightenment, and he's sitting with that firm resolve not to get up from his seat until he has achieved full awakening, full enlightenment. Now just think for a moment. Of the nature of that resolve. Imagine coming into the hall. (laughs) I will not get up from my seat until I have achieved Buddhahood. So you can, fortunately he got enlightened that very night, but (laughs) maybe he knew. And according to this particular description, As the night progressed, different forms of Mara, you know, and Mara in the Buddhist tradition is the embodiment of ignorance, so the embodiment of delusion. So it's said that on the night of his awakening, before his enlightenment, different forms of Mara appeared. It's said that there were terrifying visions, you know, of violence and aggression, and very seductive visions, you know, of heavenly pleasures and delights. And then one sentence describes for me what is the essence of this whole path. You know, and so, as the bodhisattva is experiencing all these terrifying and seductive visions, it says, and the mind of the great being was not moved. You know, and the mind of the bodhisattva was not moved. And so, this can be the pole star of our own practice. In whatever posture we're in, in whatever activity we're doing, are we pulled out of awareness? What has the power in our experience to move our minds? You know, how are our minds seduced? Now, we see this happening on many levels. We get lost in strong emotions. We just get pulled right into them. You know, in these powerful stories, we can get lost just in fleeting thoughts. just the daydreaming mind. We can get lost in identification with consciousness itself. You know, where we create a self in awareness. So the Buddha helps us out in the teaching by highlighting some particularly seductive energies. And it's essential that we learn to recognize these deeply ingrained habits of mind, some of which are traditionally called the hindrances, so that we can explore their nature. These are recurring patterns that happen again and again in our experience, we need to learn to recognize them, to really explore the nature of these forces in the mind, and also to see clearly what is their particular allure. Why do we get caught again and again? So when we do this, when we make them part of our practice in this way, then we experience the various hindrances or difficult emotions not no longer as a personal problem. And really not even particularly as a difficulty in practice. But rather, it's a chance when they arise, when these deeply conditioned patterns arise, it's a chance for us to see that very dynamic interplay in those moments of ignorance and awareness. Are we lost or are we mindful? We can see for ourselves in those very moments the play between suffering and peace, suffering and freedom. It's not theoretical. We're actually in the experience of it. Now, I think I mentioned earlier that we come to a place when the practice matures a bit where there's almost a delight in seeing the defilements because we'd rather see them than not see them. You know, so that's a powerful turning point. You when know, we're no longer judging ourselves because they're arising, but yeah, let me see it. Let me see what desire's like, or aversion's like, or fear is like. So there's a kind of joy, there's a kind of interest uh, that's developed. In the Tibetan Dzogchen practice, there's a saying, the greater the emotion, the greater the passion, the greater the awareness. So what does that mean? It means that as we practice being mindfully aware in the face of strong emotions, if we practice being mindfully aware, in the face of these very seductive energies, then the awareness itself becomes steadier and more stable. So we're actually using that energy to strengthen awareness. Can we practice so that our own minds, like the mind of the great being, the bodhisattva, are not moved? in the face of all of these habitual tendencies even if it's occasionally not moved you know we get it we get a taste of what it's like yes I can be aware the awareness can be stable even as these storms appear and disappear so there are a few steps in the process the first is recognition We need to practice recognizing the telltale signs of the different hindrances. And this is a bit tricky. We might think, oh, yes, it should be easy to recognize when the hindrances are present. But it's not always so easy because the hindrances often come masquerading as something good, and skillful, and so we're fooled by their disguise. And I'll talk a little bit about this. So tonight I want to speak in particular about two of these hindrances, beginning with the mind state of doubt. Now in English, the word doubt can refer to two quite different states. One of these states is helpful and one is not. So the helpful kind of doubt is the doubt of inquiry. It's the doubt of investigation. It's the doubt of the bumper sticker in Berkeley and Cambridge that says, question authority. Now that's a question yes, not dogmatic belief. That kind of doubt is good. Question, look, inquire, investigate. What is really going on? What is happening? What is the nature of experience? So that kind of doubt is helpful. In in some Zen traditions, it's called the, the great doubt. But the unskillful aspect of doubt, we could call skeptical doubt. And this is the mind state of uncertainty. It's the mind state of indecision. It's like being at a crossroads and then not knowing which way to go. And the mind just goes back and forth between the alternatives and not going anywhere. You know, so you can just picture a person, you know, in that situation stuck at the crossroads and doubt preventing them from going in either direction. Skeptical doubt, this kind of doubt, when it's unnoticed and unrecognized is such a powerful hindrance because it brings our practice and sometimes our lives to a standstill. In a way, it paralyzes us. When this kind of doubt is strong, it doesn't even give us the opportunity to make a choice and make a mistake and then learn from our mistake. It's like we're frozen in indecision, always checking ourselves, wondering, trying to decide. Some years ago, there was a wonderful novel called The Life of Pi by Jan Martel. He had one line in there, which when I read, when I was reading the book, it just kind of jumped off the page because it was such a perfect description of this mind state. He wrote, to choose doubt, this kind of skeptical doubt, as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happens. (laughs) We don't go anyplace. So in meditation, Tao takes some quite particular forms. And if we pay attention, we can begin and learn to recognize these patterns, these forms, when they arise. You know, for all of us in our practice at different times, difficulties will arise. So this is normal. This is not only our practice, this is in life. There are times when things are difficult. But especially in practice, when these difficulties arise, sometimes they lead to doubting thoughts about the practice itself and i'm sure at different times you've had these thoughts what does sitting here watching my breath have to do with anything (laughs) what does it have to do with all the suffering in the world what good is it you know it's just in out in out in out it's kind of useless so that's one kind of doubting thought a doubt about the practice so we might start comparing practices You know, you're sitting, you're going through a dry spell. Maybe I should be doing Tibetan chanting, you know, or Sufi dancing. You know, they sound like more fun. So again, it's just the doubting mind. But even more powerful and more deeply ingrained than these doubts about the practice is the very... Powerful pattern that is in many people of self doubt. It's really doubting our ability to practice. You know, it's the thought, the endless thoughts Am I doing it right? I can't do it. It's too hard. It's not the right time. I have too much other stuff going on in my life. And so we have all these thoughts which just reinforce this self-doubt about our ability to practice. When self-doubt is a strong pattern in the mind, it's not only a hindrance in meditation, it's a very debilitating force in our lives. Because we're always checking ourselves, we're always holding back back out of this self-doubt. There's an interesting phrase in English you know, we say, someone is plagued by doubt. It is a plague. It really is a plague of the mind in that it weakens the mind. Instead of making the experiment, just engaging in whatever the activity is, in this case, meditation, Instead of making it and fully engaging in the experience so that we can assess for ourselves whether it's beneficial or not, the mind simply gets lost in this endless speculation. And then doubt does become self-fulfilling. Because staying lost in the doubting mind really is useless. It doesn't lead any place, it doesn't go any place it doesn't allow us the opportunity to investigate for ourselves if you've ever been caught in the doubting mind you know that this endless conjecture whether it's about the practice whether it's about one's ability you know just the pattern of self-doubt that you know that it's both exhausting and painful doubt, this doubting mind, the doubting tapes in the mind, it's likened to a thorn that just keeps jabbing the mind. So every time those thoughts come and we're not aware of them, we're lost in them, it's like our minds get jabbed. And so we feel irritable and we feel discouraged. or We feel dissatisfied. Sometimes self-doubt comes from deeply conditioned feelings of unworthiness. Now, maybe for whatever reason of our conditioning, there's kind of an undercurrent of this feeling of unworthiness. And if that's there and not seen clearly, it can often lead to self-doubt. So His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, Years ago, in the very early years of the center, he came here to visit. And it was during a three-month course. And somebody asked him this question. One of the yogis asked, I do not feel worthwhile as a person. How can I work on this as a beginning meditation student? And at first, I don't think he really understood what unworthiness meant <laughs> because it's not a Tibetan thing. <laughs> and w- when you hear his response to it, you'll understand why culturally it's not a Tibetan pattern. So he got very fierce in his answer. And, you know, usually he's so soft and loving. and th- But it was one of the few times I saw him when he... <laughs> He gave a very strong answer to this person. I do not feel worthwhile as a person. How can I work on this? So His Holiness said, you should not be discouraged. Your feeling I am of no value is wrong. Absolutely wrong. You are deceiving yourself. So it wasn't, oh, yeah, I'm really sorry about your childhood. And (laughs) I mean, the conditions, whatever the conditions were that the feeling is there, that's what they were. But he's just cutting right through it. The feeling may be there. So it's not denying the presence of the feeling. It's whether we give validity to it or not. He's saying, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. This feeling, I have no value. Why? if we really understand the nature of mind, that union of emptiness and clarity, everybody has this awakened aware state but me. You know, it's not that some people have it and some people don't. And so there's that recognition of the essential goodness, the essential purity, the essential the clarity of each one of our nature of mind. And so this feeling is just wrong. We deceive ourselves. So it's very helpful to really reflect on that. Again, that feeling of unworthiness or self-doubt may arise out of habit. We can see it, we can be aware of it, but with some reflection we can learn not to give it validity to see that it's not essentially true. Okay, so the Buddha summed up all of this when he said of doubt and the other hindrances, when we attend to them carelessly, when we attend to the hindrances carelessly, they cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, and leading away from awareness. So given this, you know, of course, lack of vision, lack of knowledge, detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, leading away from awareness, we might wonder, why do we get caught up in them again and again? You know, what's the allure of doubt, given that that's the effect? If we can recognize, and we need to practice recognizing, the arising of doubt, just all those doubting thoughts, those doubting shapes in the mind, we need to learn to recognize them, have an attitude of interest and inquiry, then the second step in the process after recognition is learning to see why it's so seductive. If it just makes us miserable, why do we get pulled into it again and again? So that's an interesting thing to look at. We begin to see that the great seduction of doubt, of the doubting mind, is that it comes masquerading as a wisdom. And that's why we get pulled into it. We hear this very wise sounding voice in the mind. And it sounds so reasonable and so valid and so true. And what's the point of doing this? Maybe some other time. Other practices are really so much better. I'm just not able to do it now. You know, we hear all of these voices and it's in that tone of voice that just sounds so right. We say, yeah, that's the voice of wisdom speaking. And it's because we're fooled by that disguise. We think it's wisdom. And it's not wisdom, it's doubt. So we want to unmask it. We want to see through the disguise. There's one other kind of doubt I just want to touch on very briefly. And it comes up more in life situations, perhaps, than on retreats. It's when we're in a situation and we're faced with different alternatives. We're really at a life juncture. Should I do this or that? Should I go this way or that way? And we really don't yet know what to do. We just don't know. And so the mind can go back and forth endlessly. You know, thinking it out this way, thinking it out that way. For many people, The experience of not yet knowing is very uncomfortable. We don't like not knowing. And because we are not willing to just be in the not knowing, it drives the mind to try to figure it out through this endless loop of thoughts. But when there's not yet sufficient clarity of understanding about the situation, we can think about it forever and we're going to just stay in perplexity and confusion because we don't yet know. We're not yet clear about what to do. So a very helpful mantra, and this really was a turning point in my own experience of doubt, perplexity, confusion, in just that kind of situation where I was faced with two alternatives going in different directions. I didn't know what to do, tormenting myself for quite a while. And at a certain point, I realized it's okay not to know. We can become accepting of the not knowing and just rest in that space until things become clear. Not to try to force it through these endless speculative thoughts. Okay, so with all of these different kinds of doubt, if we can become aware of doubt, doubt about the practice, self-doubt, If we can see this doubt as just another passing thought and we don't give it any power, we see a doubting tape. I can't do the practice. It's too hard. I'm such a mess. Whatever it is. Doubting tape. We see it as just a thought. In the very midst of the doubt, there can be a sudden awakening. To the empty, insubstantial nature of the doubt itself. Does this seem clear? The very hindrance when we bring mindfulness to it, when we bring awareness to it, when we understand its allure, and we say, Yeah, that's just a thought, it's a doubting thought. Right there, there is a sudden awakening. And the mind is freed in that moment the mind of the great being was not moved doubt arose the mind not moved the doubting thought comes and goes not a problem so another mind state that powerfully conditions our lives beside doubt is the very familiar one of aversion you know and aversion takes many forms anger hatred Annoyance, irritation, fear, grief, ill-will, the judging mind all these forms of aversion, they're all mind states which are conditioned reactions to experiences we find are unpleasant. This is our, this is our habitual reaction. Something' that's unpleasant in one way or another, we'd like to get rid of it. So as with doubt, we can learn to recognize all of these forms of aversion when they arise and really investigate the very nature of these emotions, because this is part of our lives. You know, we get annoyed, we get irritated, we get angry, we're judging. and to see, okay, what's the hold of aversion in our minds? Why do we get seduced by it? So aversion arises in some pretty predictable ways, very easy to see in relationship to physical pain. When unpleasant sensations arise in the body, there are very few people whose first reaction is, oh, good, a chance for me to explore this. Maybe that comes, but that's not usually the first reaction. You know, as pain or unpleasant sensations arise, the conditioned habitual reaction is we feel contraction, we feel frustration, we feel impatience. We just don't like it. We want to get rid of it. If you're sitting you know, and you feel your energy system contracting, that's a pretty good signal that there's aversion in the mind to something that's going on. Saida Utejania, who's a Burmese uh, monk, he has some great teachings on this. He said, You have to accept and watch both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. You only want pleasant experiences. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? (laughs) Is this the way of the Dhamma? (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Is this fair? Life presents both pleasant and unpleasant. This is just what it means to be alive. So can we learn to be with it, to open to it, and not have that aspect of life be the cause of aversion, of ill will, of suffering? Okay, so we see it very clearly arise in relationship to physical pain. It often arises in the mind when we think about painful or unpleasant past situations. You know, there's, We're sitting and all of a sudden there's a thought or an image of someone in the past or some unpleasant situation in the past, some event. And just with that thought, we can feel ourselves getting angry or annoyed or irritated. Just thinking about it you know, what this person did or what happened in this situation. We're sitting here thinking, we get angry. It would be really helpful in those moments when you recognize that's happening, just to look a little deeper. Because in that moment, really what we're getting angry at is a thought. The person is not there. The event is not happening. It's just a thought in the mind or an image in the mind. But somehow, (laughs) it's like we're lost in the dream. We think that that that's the reality. And so we get angry at a thought. It's like getting angry at watching a movie. There's nothing, it's not really going on. My first teacher, Munindra, had... A wonderful line, and he, he used it many times, so I really entered into my consciousness. He used to say over and over again the thought of your mother is not mother, it's a thought. <laughs> so you could substitute anything for mother. The thought of whatever is not whatever, it's a thought. And one Zen teacher is teaching, it says, all is the brushwork of your own imagination. You know, we are just creating these worlds inside with our thoughts and images, and then believing that something real is going on other than it being simply a thought and an image. And we're just pulled right in. And if they happen to be unpleasant, So it conditions anger, annoyance, irritation, fear, whatever the emotion is. And what's even more fantastic is we can get angry or upset about some imagined or anticipated future situation that hasn't yet even happened. We can be sitting here imagining something is going to happen and then getting angry. We can get impatient or frustrated with unpleasant situations on retreat. Now, conditions here are pretty good, and especially for those of you who have practiced in Asia, they're very good. <laughs> but still, the mind will always find things you know, uh, that are not pleasing or with difficult, you know, difficult situations arising in our practice. And then we project that dissatisfaction on other people. You know, when we're feeling discouraged, just in our own practice, or we're feeling a bit grumpy, then the smallest thing another person does, you know, can provoke, you know, aversion or irritation. There's a phenomena called the Vipassana Vipendetta. <laughs> you know, where there's one person here or more who just, drives you crazy. You don't like the way they walk. You don't like the way they eat. You don't like the way they dress. It really has nothing. You you probably don't even know the person. (laughs) It's just the mind latching on, projecting one's own discouragement or difficulty or dissatisfaction. And it's projecting it on somebody else. So it's helpful to see that and kind of come back To see what's happening in our own minds, aversion arises when we personalize difficult situations that are impersonal. This happens a lot in our lives. We're in in an unpleasant situation that we personalize, but it really has nothing to do with us. Go to the airport. Get there two hours early, you know, plenty of time. Then you get to the gate, flight canceled. What kind of feelings come up? What kind of emotions? How could they do this to me? You know, I have to get to wherever I have to get to. And you can see lots of people getting very upset. Stuck in traffic, you know, whatever. It's not about us. But we personalize it, and that gives rise to more and more anger. Sometimes unnoticed emotions, unnoticed associated emotions, are underneath the anger and feeding it, giving rise to aversion. It's like these unnoticed emotions can be like an underground spring, and we don't even see it happening. I'll give you one example. Uh, Some years ago, I was teaching retreat. It was called a contemplative law retreat. And it was for law students and professors and a couple of judges. And so it's kind of a legal community. And in one of the discussion groups, one of the second or third year law students was talking about his experience in in the, it's a very kind of uh, Confrontative situation, you know an arguing case you know, and uh, very competitive and aggressive, and he said something very interesting in this group discussion. He said, I have to get angry so I won't feel the fear and you know, I thought, well, that's interesting and in the situation, quite understandably, especially as a student, you know in that very confrontative situation he was feeling fear but he had the assumption that to feel the fear would be weakening and so rather than feel the fear it rebounded into anger so he wouldn't feel the fear and so we got into a whole discussion of how it's actually tremendously strengthening to learn how to open the fear be accepting of the fear you know and then the mind stays stable the mind of the great being not moved, the fear is there, it comes and goes, and one responds effectively. We don't need to have it project, you know, through anger. Okay, so given all these forms of aversion and how unpleasant they usually are, you know, when we're annoyed or angry or irritated or fearful, and it's not a pleasant state. we know it doesn't make us happy. So then, what is the seduction of these states? Why do we get pulled into them again and again? Very often, with anger, the seduction of it is the very sweet feeling of being right. I should be angry or irritated or annoyed. Look at what's happening. Look at what that person is doing. You know, and so there's kind of that sweetness of being right. And the Buddha described it this way. He said, anger with its poisoned source and honeyed tip. You know, because when we look back to the source of anger, we can really see its root in ill will. That is that poison source. But that honey tip, it's the honey tip of self-righteousness. You know, and in some perverse way, it makes us feel good. So there are many different ways of working with aversion in the mind. Sometimes a moment of recognition is enough. You know, we see the aversion, we see the anger, we see the annoyance, the irritation, the fear, whatever it is, and we just recognize it. And in that moment of recognition, we might see its empty, impersonal nature. It's just a weather system passing through. We don't have to be identified with it or lost in it. We're not seduced by the habit of self-righteousness. There's one Tibetan teaching that says, if you don't cling, whatever arises is naturally freed. So that would be a good thing to remember with this hindrance of aversion. If we don't cling, if we don't cling to it, whatever arises is naturally freed, which means that it's all impermanent. It arises out of conditions and will pass away. If we don't cling, it is a weather system passing through. You know, in some Asian countries, there's a traditional trap to catch monkeys. And what they do is they hollow out a coconut, they attach it to a tree, and there's a hole in the bottom of the coconut, and they put a sweet in it, some food, and there's a hole in the bottom that's big enough for the monkey to slip its hand in when it's open, and, but not big enough for it to withdraw its hand when it's in a fist and you know, when it's clutching the food. So a monkey comes along, smells the food, reaches in, grabs it, tch, caught. It's a really rare monkey <laughs> that will let go. We may recognize that aversion or fear or anger is arising, but often we don't open our fists. You know, we're holding on to it. We're caught with it. We cling to it. When all we have to do is open the fist of our grasping mind, slip out and be free. One of the reasons we sometimes don't open our fist the clinging is because we feel that the emotion of anger or aversion or fear is actually telling us something important and there very, very well may be an important message contained in that emotion you know, we might feel anger at injustice in the world We may feel anger, you know, when there's a need to really establish some appropriate boundaries with other people. But the challenge for us, so these emotions arise, we cling because we sense or intuit that there's a valuable message perhaps contained in it, but can we we read the message Can we get the message without drowning in the emotion, without acting it out? So we want to take, we want to extract from it its value and then not get lost in it, come back to a place of balance where we can act appropriately. With aversion, as with other states, and this is something that we'll be repeating throughout the retreat, it's very helpful to frequently ask the question, what's the attitude in my mind about this? Because we may recognize the aversion, we may be mindful of it, but if we are holding that aversion, that anger, that ill will, With aversion towards it, we're just feeding it and locking it in. It doesn't work. So we need to check the attitude as these different hindrances arise. Recognizing it, seeing their allure, how they fool us. And then checking the attitude. How am I relating to this? With mindfulness, with openness, or with resistance itself? As has been said, we need to practice remembering that all of these hindrances are not intrinsic to the mind. They're not who we are. They're visitors. But they've come so often, you know, and stayed for so long. We think they live here. We think, yeah, this is who I am. I'm an angry person or I'm in whatever, a doubting person. It's not like that. They're just visitors. They're coming out of certain conditions. Conditions change. These hindrances pass away. There's a story about the famous Tibetan Yogi Milarepa, a great, great adept. He was practicing alone in a cave and within the Tibetan Kind of scheme of things, the way they describe it, he was sitting practicing meditation, and all these demons came. You know, the thing of demons is just these forces in the mind, you know, the hindering energies. And it said the Milarepa kept fighting with the demons, and the more he fought, the stronger they get, They got. And this went on for some time; and they were getting so powerful. And you, know, you can have, have, you ever seen the Tibetan iconography, you know, the demons are really. T- Big and powerful, and, and at a certain point, so the demons are getting stronger and stronger. The more he's struggling with them, at a certain point, he saw this happening. He checked his attitude about them, and he saw the struggle. He saw the fight with them. So changed the attitude. He said he he visualized his body as heavenly nectar and started feeding the demons. And as soon as he related to the demons with compassion, it said, weakened and disappeared. So what does feeding the demons mean for us? And we, we generally don't kind of visualize them as these, you know, big beings. Whatever a particular hindrance or difficulty might be, It means checking the attitude and being open to them in a gentle way. Can we open? Can we see them? Can we feel them? Can we understand them? Bringing some compassion in the experience of them. When we're struggling, you're going through the day and maybe there are times when you feel like you're struggling. The struggle means only one thing. When you're struggling, it means something is going on that you're not accepting. Because if you were accepting it, you wouldn't be struggling. So rather than just be struggling with the demons, take the struggle it sen- itself as a good feedback That's like a mindfulness bell. When you're struggling, that's like the mindfulness bell ringing, saying something's going on here in the body, in the mind, in the environment. Something's going on that I'm not open to, that I'm not accepting. So we can really sit back, open up, and see what it is. Okay, as one example of how this happens... And this is one of my very favorite poems. Some of you may have heard it in other retreats. But it is a wonderful example of going from struggle through non-acceptance to ease of mind through acceptance. And it's a poem by Billy Collins called Another Reason I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. Okay, so this is the poem. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on the way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for Barking Dog. (laughs) When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo that endless coda that first established beethoven as an innovative genius <laughs> and the whole practice is right there when we're not mindful when we're not aware all of these different hindrances of doubt and self-doubt and aversion and irritation and annoyance and fear and ill will, all of these states, all of the barking dogs, when we're not mindful, when we're not aware, they obscure the natural wisdom of the mind, the natural clarity of the mind. And when we are aware of them, when we stop struggling to keep them out, just include the barking dog in the orchestra. That's just part of experience, and we open to it all. Th- then we really begin to see how all of these states and all of these experiences are arising, they're appearing, they're changing, they're disappearing in the open, empty space of awareness. And in this way, the experience of the hindrances become a vital part of our awakening. So I would just like to close with a teaching from the biography of one of the greatest of the Thai forest masters, one of the fathers of the Thai Taurus tradition, a monk called Ajahn Mun. And this is in a biography of him by one of his Disciples who was himself considered fully enlightened. Said of all the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world. So be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize Dhamma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding Dhamma. Once the mind is known, then the Dhamma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nibbana. Clearly the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. So that's our work here together. Let's sit for a couple of moments.